Peace and blessings, family. This is your brother Asar M. Hotep with the Maduandela Institute for the Advancement of Science and Culture. Today is Sunday, January 3rd, 2021. And this is the first show for 2021. So I want to say Happy New Year's and thank you all, first and foremost, for surviving 2020. And Secondly, for joining this program, today is an open discussion, and the title of our discourse is The Attack on African Writing, a Review. Uh, we are reviewing and discussing the video lecture by the late Dr. Asa Hillier III, Ma'akheru, and it is in connection to another discussion that was going on on the Pseudo Killer Show. So we'll discuss all of that and more in just a moment. and blessings to everyone who is catching us live and of course those of you who are in the future who will be catching us on the archive and so uh again this is a uh, kind of a general discussion it's not an interview not a uh, not a lecture per se but um uh it is a discourse on the attack on African writings. And uh, hopefully for those who have the, who had the link to the show prior, and especially those who are subscribed, um, you've had an opportunity to watch the Asa Hilliard lecture that um, we are discussing today. So. The, uh, I may or may not show clips from it. You know, YouTube is funny with with showing other folks content. So, um, so we'll just kind of, you know, be freestyling it for the most part. But uh, it is a very important topic, nonetheless, and it's something that we have to uh, understand in context. You know, so especially for those of y'all who are in the community, who are having these deep discussions about African culture and history and the like, and uh, need a framework to 
respond appropriately to certain attacks on African scholars and African writings. And so before we get into our discussion, um, just want to announce first and foremost that I do have a Patreon page, and this is a one way in which you can support this channel as well as support the upcoming documentary film uh, titled Chiana Into, where we'll be visualizing the research which links the modern Bantu speakers, that is the Bakongo people, the Baluba people, the uh, Banyaranda people, the Isizulu, I mean the Amazulu people, the Shona people, the uh, Karanga people, the Makua people, the uh, Indabeli people, and a whole host of folks in Central, East, and Southern Africa, uh, the modern Bantu speakers, to the Nile Valley and ancient Egypt and Moreau in particular. And so if you want to uh, support that movement, um, please consider joining the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Asarm Hotep. There are all sorts of um, benefits to that. And one of those is early access to uh, interviews and the content. And so if you are there right now, you are able to view the interview we have with Dr. Zulu Matabo, Zulu, uh, out of South Africa, one of those buy-in-two speakers from one of those buy-in-two people who has a, a lot in common in terms of philosophy, material culture, and history with the ancient Egyptians. And so, you know, we discuss his life and the research that he does and uh, his text. So I want to interview and make known, you know, some of our not so well-known and powerful scholars. And so this is one of the missions of this channel. So you get to uh, see that interview and you get to see the interview of Dr. Andrew Jags, who recently, relatively recently, completed his PhD on the relationship between ancient Egypt and the Yoruba uh, people and the and articulating the methods for being able to uh, do that kind of historical work without being sued up. And so that's the, the, the nature of the discourse that we have, and you can watch that exclusively on the Patreon channel. So that address again is patreon.com forward slash Asar M Hotep. And you know, we're, we're speaking about the tax on African scholarship and the like, and one way in which, you know, we can defeat the, the haters of African scholarship is to make this channel very, 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 very popular. And so one way in which you can do that is smash the likes. And so we smash the likes so we can destroy the YouTube algorithms where they are forced to get this knowledge from this channel and channels like the pseudo killers and the mercy warrior clans and Dr. Maat's channel and the whole nine. And so make sure that you hit the like button 
and that you share and that you subscribe. So those of you who have not subscribed, you know, please hit the subscribe button and the bell so that you can get the notices because we have very, 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 very powerful shows coming up. And so one of those powerful shows coming up on Monday on tomorrow, it'll be another open discussion and I will be talking about my personal recommendations in terms of a study list for those of you who are coming into knowledge of self. And so uh, when people are, you know, young and hungry, uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean young in age, because you may come into a knowledge of self a little later on in your life, but you're new and young to the information. So usually what happens is you start reading everything, any and everything that sounds like it makes sense. And then uh, over the years, you have to do a second round of unlearning because you were not set on a proper foundation. Um, and so, you know, over 20 years involved in this type of research and things, I've come to engage a number of folks with different levels of consciousness and desires and goals for themselves intellectually. So uh, I've, I've put together lists at various times that would be good for them to, you know, kind of catch up and, and get the gist of, of this knowledge in various different spheres and foundations. And so I will be discussing those recommended texts uh, for the public. And so for those of you who are autodidacts and want to, you know, not fall into the pseudo realm and get attacked by Brother Unk and his team, uh, you know, this this conversation will be for you. So it's going to be tomorrow on Monday, the 4th of January. And uh, that's going to be at 8 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. So the same time now. And then at 3 p.m. on Tuesday, I will be interviewing Dr. Uh, Amin Sakana out of London. And many may not be familiar with him, but I'm pretty sure you're familiar with his publishing company, which is Karnak House. And Karnak House has produced some works from Dr. Um, Adupe Oduyoye, Dr. Obinga, um, Dr. Uh, Yosef Binyakinen, and Charles S. Finch, and the late Dr. Jacob Carruthers, and the whole nine. So uh, he's a, a he's a pretty big deal, and um, so that's going to be at three p.m. Eastern time on. Tuesday, January the 5th. So stay tuned for that. So without further ado, we will get started with our program. And so we have a few special, special guests with us. First and foremost, we got our good brother, uh, Any Herod Sean P. 
from the Mosi Warrior Clan. How you doing, good brother? Your mic is muted. Well, he may have stepped away and went and got some anti-pseudo juice. And so we'll bring him back in just a moment. And we also got with us from the pseudo killers, Amon Ross squad, brother Unk, AKA the God killer in the house, in the place to be. How you doing good brother? Hey, what's going on brother Saul, man? How you doing, man? <laughs> I'm doing well, I'm doing well. Uh, and yourself, how, how the new year treating you thus far? Ah oh, man, it's treating me good, man. Uh, ain't no need to complain. Not to mention, um, it's kind of be visiting some of my old uh, I'm a raw score sources, man. Going through the old folder, I pulled pulled up in the Journal of Science and it's quite simple. <laughs> and look, looking at that, and then looking at UNESCO and even having the symposium. Was based off of you know us not giving a chance to actually voice our scholarship, whether it's right or wrong or not. And then you know they do their opinions just all out attacking like everything. But you know that's part of the whole uh, the fight we have. You know they put you through. It's all good. You know that's what scholars do, man. They pack our scholarship, but that's okay because they attack each other. So we up for the challenge, man. Just glad to be part of this particular generation, man. Just bringing those items back to full circle again. I say back again. It was the science. Some kind of way, yo. Somebody, I'm glad we're here to bring it all back together again, bro. All right. Uh, we got Brother Sean. Oh, you know what? Tomorrow, tomorrow is 6 o'clock, though, yo. We having a, um, let me share screen real quick before we get to, get the. Get the jamming. We're gonna have uh, vaccine scientists on. I think that's important. Uh, let me see. Kind of put us where we wanna be at. You see the screen? Um, okay, yeah, I gotta I gotta add it. Hold on. Hold on. There we go. Yeah, at the current, see the screen? Yeah, I see it. it, it's up. Okay, from the University of Maryland School of Medicine. All right, vaccine African American community, uh, January 4th, uh, 6 p.m., broadcasting live on YouTube on the Pseudo Killers. Um, D in the building, at Kern, all right, she's the head of the Division of Infectious Disease Pediatrics and the Director of Clinical Studies at the Center for Vaccine Development and Go Health. So we're going to attack y'all on all fronts. Uh, she's not in here to debate. That will be ridiculous. She's in to present and teach and inform our community um, exactly what's going on. So sometimes it's just better to go to the horse's mouth. I mean, you know, everybody talking that talk. Uh, you know, around here, man, we like to walk that walk. So you know, this is the, the, these are the things I learned uh, for, for being uh, with the good brothers when I'm raw squad. Yo, you bring the top notch in fields when it really gets sticky. So, you know, I just mm -hmm. want to kind of present that, bro. Let everybody know where to be at. 
Um, then, you know, after that show, I guess you're going to have your show. So that's perfect. We'll stream them on over to your show. That's good. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, Brother Sean, you there? Uh, is it working now? Yes, sir. I'm here. All right. Welcome. Welcome. Happy New Year, good brother. Happy New Year to you. Appreciate you having me. What up, Brother Unk, Black African Power? <laughs> hey, what's going on, man? Pseudo Killer Moss Clan Warrior, the whole nine yards, man. Shashu, Marty Manonetcha, the Shashu crew. I like that better. The Shashu crew. <laughs> you can say that, huh? <laughs> Shashu. Yeah. yeah, you still messed it up. Huh? Change the name, yo, to the Shashu crew, yo. <laughs> yeah, so uh, thanks for having me, man. I'm uh, delighted to be here, uh, ready to be a part of the discussion. Uh, like, like, like I've already said, you know, it's uh, so it's a conversation that need to be had. And we're gonna bring it over a little bit from the pseudo killers. Um, if anyone actually did not watch the video, uh, I think you should watch it to understand people's perspective. It's it's similar to to a wave of uh, attacks on uh, African Center scholarship uh, for quite some time, and uh, you know we just got to build on it. So appreciate being. Mm -hmm. Indeed, indeed. Appreciate you uh, for coming. And so, uh, again, the, the inspiration for this particular program was is the fact that, you know, I don't know how the conversation started. And so that's uh, partially why y'all are here. Um, but, you know, I'm subscribed to the pseudo killers. So I get a notice that it's a live show. And so I just decided to check it out. I got a little time on my hands and um, they're having, by the time I get into it, into the, um, to the video, the live stream, they're talking about this brother Reggie on the line and they're talking about uh, certain uh, 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 attacks or credibility, it seems, you know, against Dr. Ben. And this led into a conversation about you know, uh, Afro, the, the validity of Afrocentricity. And, you know, we went into the Martin Banal debates and discussions and, you know, the whole nine. And so uh, there was there were several things that I took away from the conversation that I, I knew needed to be had. And there was this video that I share almost every year. Uh, once or twice, on at least on my page, it is by the late Dr. Asa Hillier, Hilliard the Third, and it's titled the the YouTube video is titled, you know, uh, Attack on African Writings, and in this, it's an hour long lecture or uh, presentation by Dr. Hilliard at one of the ASCAT conferences, I believe it was like in 2009, um, ASCAT conference. And so he lays out the, you know, the, the systematic attacks, you know, on African scholarship. And he's raising these questions uh, about how to approach these various different attacks and, and showing people where to go in terms of the following the money and, and things of this nature and to, and to demonstrate that these attacks are in fact not random, 
they are they are systematic and well-funded propaganda machines and what's what's disturbing is of course that the lay public has no idea about this history that was discussed in this lecture and they take the propaganda as truth and then try to use that to attack their own scholars and you know i saw a lot of that on the the pseudo killer show with with some of the guests uh, and panelists i should say and uh this is you know so this is why you know we having this uh discussion today and so i wanted to to put it in context and and to continue that conversation you know uh just you know in a slightly different direction so with that i wanted to real get, quick Asaf, uh, you die will you die real quick real quick so let, let me kind of frame the conversation in proper context hold so, on that's what uh, i was just about to ask if if yeah, you yeah. can um yeah, tell us what the what the the show was about and right. then you know how we got to that point where i entered all right. Okay. So basically, what we have is we got the next generation uh, of brothers and sisters is dead. Uh, so you got you got Africa, you got all our scholars that we had. Then they got overthrown or just got old, and and then you get the pseudos that came in. And so now you got this next generation just telling the whole damn thing. Black algae overemphasizing Africa, messing it up making them fly through the every greatest ease. And so you got these young brothers and sisters that's taller the whole nine yards. And so they wasn't even concerned with Africa. They were strictly concerned with building, you know, uh, African-Americans understanding scientific literacy, okay? And they're going to pick up what they pick up along the way about Africa. And that's my job. And so they have a lot of questions about uh, the scholarship that was involved. They got a lot of questions about what Africa is and what it wasn't. So, you know, a lot of brothers and sisters wasn't privy to your show uh, in the early 2000s. They brought on legitimate African scholars and their fight for it. So they're not even privy to these conversations. And so we just had one of those conversations. We fought all day long about it. Now, these brothers and sisters, they love Africa, right? And they dedicated to making sure that African people, specifically in America, right, you know, get a fair shake at whatever they're supposed to have. So at no point was they throwing any shade. They did what they were supposed to do. Ask the hard goddamn questions. And so in asking the hard questions, we got into it. The thing was basically over to Mark Bunnell. The conversation was really over Mark Bunnell and, Le and Lefowich, a conversation. Uh, the three volume set, Black Athenian, you really had like four books, right? Dealing with mm -hmm. uh, Black Athenian. That was the real conversation. Dr. Ben happened to get thrown in there. Uh, a brother brought, um, the New York Times article talking about Dr. Ben, you know, everybody that travel out circles know what degrees he had and didn't have. We already know that. That's not news to us, right? The New York Times article kind of framed it a little bit ridiculous, like, like they supposed to. And we was, you know, so we got to clear that part up. But as far as um, them really taking time to understand what, what that was, that has not been, you know, our focus on the pseudo killers, right? Those brothers' focus is to get the African-Americans, because we've been left out, right? The African 
left out. It was all about Africa and to hell with what we're doing in North America. And so, you know, to them brothers and sisters credit, man, they were respectful when it comes to that topic. Uh, Brother Sheffern didn't even want to have, we had the argument offline. See, see, that's how tight now game has gotten now. We had the real serious argument offline, and you know, I hit the live button. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know what I mean? You know, I knew Sean was coming, and I knew you would get the back signal. I knew you was coming, and I, and I knew we could have a, a, a great conversation. I think this show right here is a continuation of it. I think we'll get to the nuts and bolts why it's got to be a brother like a Sahu Tep, you know what I'm saying, and a whole Amaral squad that that really as a pro Africa. But yeah, I just wanted to frame that properly and shout out to my brothers on the pseudo brothers. All right. Uh, brother Sean, uh, you came into the conversation and you know at what point did you come into the conversation and what was your takeaway from the uh from the discourse yeah yeah i, I come into the conversation right before the show got <laughs> uh, and uh you know how i go man you know yeah. um uncle sheffron was having a discussion sheffron had questions uh sosa sosa wanted to challenge the validity of degrees or the embellishment of the degrees uh, which you know, I really don't care anything about that. Sheffron's position is a little bit deeper, um, than, than, than Sosa. Sosa primarily wanted to stick to the degrees, you know, that's what he wanted to iron out. And, um, you know, Sheffron's a little bit like, you know, he was like, Look, man, I'm not trying to, I'm, I'm only trying to deal with Bernal's work and, you know, the critique, uh, that was written of Bernal's work, but not the response work, but just pretty much the critique, uh, you know, because they, they feel like a lot of them feel like, you know, part of our problems in America is that a lot of, uh, a lot of our authors and uh, scholars, so forth, embellished, uh, also took part in, in the embellishment of history per se, not, not to full extent, but some type of embellishment that kind of got us all thrown off and 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 that we need to get that straight but um you know that was pretty much how how when i came in so i kind of went back and forth with him a little bit because this has came up before but my position is i don't i don't i don't like the word black ology per se and um because you know there's no there's no uh there's no school of thought for that. It, it's a, it's an assumption or an illusion created by somebody's perspective of what they think something is. But there are people that are that fit the criterion as far as the embellishment of history and want to spread black everything all over the world. And um, so I'm, I'm my part really is is arguing against the certain perspectives of it to draw a line like look man there's a difference between what you think uh, yeah. afrocentricity afrocentrism is and what it isn't and um and you know you you, you got to properly define that using the person who actually created the model but also you got to put in perspective you know what our ancestors and what some of these scholars was up against at the time uh since since the early 1900s who they're who they're challenging and writing against like who was going to speak for not only 
uh, African-Americans, but the continent of Africa, because they weren't listening, you know, uh, academia per se, wasn't listening to to African-Americans or Africa, um, regardless of, you know, everything that they put us through. And I, and I think that we lose track of that. But that's pretty much why I came in in the conversation and, uh, you know, and then uh, the button got hit. And then it started from there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, all right, all right. let me tell you what a blackologist is. I'll just go straight for the names. People like a uh, Pharaoh, he's a blackologist. Um, people like uh Sarah Street he's a blackologist. Um, everybody that wants to paint the Africa out of his natural environment is a blackologist. Everybody try to make the whole world. Uh, African, and I don't mean as far as genetics and evolution turn, literally think that if a black person ain't do it, it ain't happening. Everybody else was just retarded. You know what I'm saying? After they mutated, it was black people. The Indians is black. The Indian from India is black. Native Americans is black. The Australians is black. Them goddamn, them white people was black. And the, 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 the Romans was black. And you know the, the daggone uh, Vikings was black. The Irish was black. You know what I'm saying? We call them the blackity black. That's the black allergies, right? We're not talking about our powers, right? We're not talking about those who, who, who understand and, and, and break down and study sources. We're not talking about them at all. Not at all. We're talking about the black allergies, the blackity black. Everything is blackity black. That would be the pseudo new age community. <laughs> well, I think you're right. need to get those initiatives tight. You know what I'm saying? And we no, that's all good. Um, brother Sean, were you able to watch the video by Dr. Hilliard? And yes, if so, what was your takeaways? Uh, um, I agree with the uh, the, the argument. Um, only because I understand um, in his time what he was up against, or and, and not only not only uh, the ancestor, but you know the people that he named, um, who are, you know some of them are now ancestors now, like mm -hmm. you know trying to say hold on, we had a stake in this. Also, like you're 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 coming to the party late, and. Um, and, I, and, and that's not that's not what history teaches. Even when you look at um, American history or U.S. history, per se, academia is settled on Christopher Columbus discovered America. Now, they don't get, you know, North, sometimes you, you might see back in the days, maybe in the 80s or the 90s, it, it, it might would have said North America or it might would have said something else. But this is when they start to write their history. So. When you look at what he was saying in the video and what resonated was like, hey, look, we're under attack. We're under attack because, you know, they don't want us in the fight with them. You know, they don't want us fighting for our stake and claim in this world. And, um, you know, he, he, he named some important pieces and how they were actually trying to defame uh, scholarship, Afri you know, Afro uh, African Center Scholarship or Africology, mm -hmm. you know, Africana Studies, however we want to label it. They wanted to dismiss it. 
deem it as uh, unreliable, not not worthy. Um, you know, all of those things. Like, what do you mean? Why why do you know? Why is this not important? We're not being told why this is not important by these these uh, academia per se. Like they set the standard, and and if they don't agree with it, then that's how that's how the rest of the world is supposed to go. Like this is what the the challenge was. So yeah, I mean, watching all of it was very informative, and he took a stance. You know what I asked? He stood up there and he took that took that stance, and he he laid the argument out. And he and he, he named names. He was specific about the position. Exactly, exactly. And, and to to reemphasize a, a few of the points you made is that he he had talked about how, for example, they like scholars. Like if you read carefully their so-called critiques, most of it is characterization and more specifically mischaracterization of the actual arguments and the points being made. Like it's easy for them to attack like the pseudos because they're just way out there. But when it comes to the serious scholarship, they'll just, they'll just summarily dismiss it without engaging the actual scholarship itself. And, you know, and they'll call it, you know, a pseudo fringe on the margin, you know, not the mainstream opinion and stuff to this okay. nature, but they won't say why, you know. And when ultimately this debate is a debate about method and methodology and how to properly critique and analyze scholarship. And what you'll find for those of, of you who are you know, listening to this live is that, again, they refuse to engage directly the scholarship. And you know, once they do that, then they have to contend with those primary sources. So you, they, they keep forgetting that these, these African scholars go to the best schools that Europe has to offer. Then when they start writing about African history, all of a sudden they just don't know what they talking about. You know, that's real funny to me, but these individuals take a few courses somewhere and think that they can speak intelligently about African people in African history, you know, and 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 most of the time, you know, based on the most skirmish of evidence. And so uh, and we'll get into some more details a, a little bit later. But um, so now I'm going to ask the same question to you, brother. Uh, were you able to to view the video? And if so, you know, what were some of your takeaways from it? Yeah, and I viewed uh, half of the video, and uh, what I watched. This is how you're gonna know I watched the video. That that film you're working on. By the uh -huh. time you finish that, those people that you mentioned. You're breaking up. Oh, can you, uh, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. Okay. 
show you how you know I watched the video, right? The movie that you're working on and those different, uh, clearly African people, right? And their language and how it ties to the Nile Valley and all that. By the time you finish that movie and critique it, those African will be relegated to the Asiatics and white people. <laughs> Ain't nowhere in the world that those African people could have been part of the Nile Valley. They're going to be relegated to being white. This will be the excuse that will be made. Once you put that material out and prove that those languages tie back into the valley, those particular people that tie back to the valley are going to be Asiatic and white people. That's that's the game the game is played. Ain't nowhere in the world that Egypt could have influenced Greece. Ain't nowhere in the world. And their particular uh, the ancient model, the Greeks themselves know what the hell they was talking about. But Lechowicz, the German, she surely knows what she's talking about. Now, she wasn't raised in Greece and in the Mediterranean. She wasn't back then. She was from, you know, she did her scholarship in 1985, and she knows more than the quote-unquote uh, ancient model. And I think this is very important for people Breaking up again. Again, so you're breaking up again. I uh, hear uh, you say it was a very important for the people to. It's very, it's very important for the people to know to learn what the ancient model was and what the Aryan model was. The Aryan model is the model that's used by German academia to to quote unquote remove. Uh, uh, what the Greeks themselves said about their own culture and where they got their things from. And so, uh -huh. the ancient model, where they on them time because they, and they talked about uh, uh, who they dealt with in ancient times. And then there's this new thing called formulated by the Germans themselves as they go into Egypt and all that. And formulate the story. So the battle between Lechowitz and Black Athena, Black Athena is using the ancient model. And there's a chapter in book one where he act, he explains what the ancient model is and what the Aryan model is. And I think that should be a start. Right? Instead of the ancient model. You see how they play these games. <laughs> book so the video was just basically telling you how they just, you know, how dare you. It's almost like, how dare you, right? And then our people won't allow us to make mistakes. Like, come on, man, as many mistakes they made and they scholarship over other people's culture for years, right? While we was literally enslaved, while we was enslaved, we was relegated to monkeys. Remember that? Okay, you yeah. took Charles Darwin to overturn that. You, you, you feel me? You, it took scientists that was willing to tell it. We, we could get a chance at it now, right? And of course, we're going to make mistakes on the way. And of course, it's open for critique. But goddamn, man, like I say, man, can you get a chance? <laughs> can we get a shot at it, at least to make mistakes? Can you get a chance yeah. to talk about why you don't like, you know, why certain languages of this? I mean, do you get that shot at it, bro? I mean, like, Damn, why don't you just go to Harvard and get a degree and then you probably can do it then and then they'll find another way to get you. Well, I don't know, bro. It's it's funny style of me all the way, man. We deserve our seat at the table, bro.
just that simple. Exactly. And um, you were breaking up in certain parts. So I'll just kind of repeat uh, certain key points. And that is when you read Martin Bernal's work, he he frames it part of the discussion in terms of what he calls the Aryan model and the ancient model. And so the the when it comes to the question of the development of ancient Greece as a society and Greek philosophy, um, you know, and, and science in particular. And so if, you know, you went to school back in the day, they, uh, they would try to make it seem as if the, the Greeks just appeared out of nowhere. Like there was just this, this burst of genius <laughs> that happened amongst the Greeks and they grew out of the ground and was watered directly by Zeus himself. And this is where the genius and all the ideas of the Greeks and stuff comes from. That's the, that's the essential argument that you would uh, get in any of these particular classes. And so then there are scholars who could actually read the Greek and would come out and say that, no, this is not what the Greeks themselves are saying. And so the Greeks are saying that they got these gods from Egypt and from Phoenicia, and they got these ideas from, from Egypt and Phoenicia, et cetera, et cetera. I see uh, Brother Sheffron is in the uh, the chat, and you know he makes this comment that they didn't say they got their philosophy from them, meaning the, the Greeks didn't say. I'm assuming he's saying that the Greeks didn't say that they got their philosophy from the Egyptians, and they actually do, and that's just the point here. And so when, when we are engaging in, in, this, in this type of discussion, we always go to the primary sources. Primary sources are key. And when, matter of fact, the, the Greeks tell you where to go in Egypt to learn and how much it costs to get there and to do their studying. That's how detailed the Greeks were in terms of learning in, um, in Egypt. And so this is the kind of stuff that Obinga and Diop, you know, brought out and uh, Martin Bernal and others. There are other, you know, scholars, African scholars who have, uh, who have done this work as well. Unfortunately, a lot of it is in French. And so a lot of us who don't, you know, know how to speak it or or read it, you know, don't don't know about it and 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 don't read those particular texts. And so so you know, you have these two models. You have the ancient model where the where the Greeks in their own records are saying one thing 
And then you have coming into the 17th century and the development of Freemasonry and, you know, Egyptology at the time of slavery and all of this other kind of stuff, this changing because the early scholars recognized this. They acknowledged this in their text. But as more and more they were trying to justify slavery and the downtrodden of Africans, you start to see this systematic reverse of position and opinion about the, the validity of the claims of the ancient, you know, Greeks. And so now, the, so this is, you know, the Aryan model. So the Aryans, the, you know, this idea that these Aryans were these pure Europeans and the smartest and most evolved and most intelligent, you know, individuals, because of that type of thought, then you get this so-called idea of a Greek miracle that, you know, it wasn't, it was just their own internal genius that they were able to do and accomplish, you know, the, the things that they were able to accomplish because Greece is so important because that's the beginning of the so-called Western civilization. And so if you know the history after Greece comes Rome and Rome were just a bunch of nomadic fighters they didn't have no writing and philosophy so they studied greece and so they came up as a result of studying greece and then of course the 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 romans they spread their uh, empire across europe and it brought up britain and germany and they rose up as a result of studying greece and studying rome and so if you attack greece then you attack the whole Western civilization because they were all quote unquote civilized by the Greeks directly or indirectly, you know, um, as a result of time. And so this is what this, this Aryan versus, uh, uh, the ancient model, you know, really entails. And so, uh, have you brother Sean had an opportunity to, to read, uh, any of the Black Athena volumes? I'm still trying to read the second one. I didn't put it down and, <laughs> and got to reading all these other books. Yeah, it, it's a thick book. Or these are thick books, all of them, really. And it requires some real concentrated reading. And it's, it's interesting that a lot of people who are critiquing these books have never read the books. And not only have they never read the books, they don't have the background to be able to critique the books. So Brother Unk is showing the books, you know, uh, right now. And, yeah, you and see, that's, hey, when you, when you start ahead. seeing books sectioned out, look, broken up, getting old, you know what I'm saying? See, <laughs> you, you, like, like this what I, I mean, I, like, wait a minute, let's do this. You mentioned something a minute ago. Uh -huh. You don't know the Freemasonry, Freemasonry itself, the Rastacrucianists and the Illuminati, okay, this is during the Age of Enlightenment. Their whole thing is based off of Egypt and the knowledge that was far superior than anybody's in the ancient world. See, those particular Europeans, they was breaking away from the Catholic Church. And so like the Catholic Church put a smear campaign on them. They also slowed up the decipherment of the Medellin. Because they knew if you could decipher the Metanetics in the true history, Egypt would come out. You know what I'm saying? We learned this in the decipherment of the Metanetics. And so the Rosh the Masons, and all them, 
This is called the, the period of enlightenment. So Europeans don't even get enlightenment until they go past Greece. I'm gonna say this again. The enlightenment process, right? Did they name the age of enlightenment after? The Illuminati groups, right? It is based off of what you study Egypt and what Egypt actually did and what she had. Isaac Newton, all your scientists of that time, they all relied on Egypt and big up Egypt for its knowledge and wisdom base. They didn't big up Greece. Wait, let me slow this down. On the time in the age of enlightenment, it's filled by the Masons, Rostocrucianists, okay? The Illuminati, all right? They called them Illuminati, right? It was based of studying ancient Egypt and its ancient philosophy, wisdom, and science. And they said, based off of their studies, they didn't say Greece. You know why? Because they read what the Greeks said. Then by the time you get to the 1900s, all of a sudden, the German school of thought comes in and say all of that, the whole, they, they basically saying the whole enlightenment was wrong. You feel me? That they didn't know what the hell they were talking about. You got books like The Golden Broth. Um, it's a few books that John Henry Clark uh, suggests you read, okay? So it influenced, right, heavily on Western civilization. And there is no debate on that. So I don't even know, I I, I don't know. I, I think Leckowitz did what you said a few minutes ago. She looked at the pseudos and she picked up on mistakes and made the mistakes the whole of the study. The mistakes aren't the whole of the study. There's just that, they're mistakes. Exactly. And matter of fact, I think I'm a, I think I'm Don't a share. Julia Sheffernan. <laughs> You would have to give him the link because um, I'm I'm not friends with him, so I don't know how to get it to him. <laughs> so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna share my screen real quick, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to give like a brief lesson. So this is from Eluja volume two. And this is something that like a lot of people fail to do when they're just accepting, you know, arguments from European scholars about African scholars. Right. So, um, for those of you who have Eluja Volume 2, this is, I'm just taking this from the introduction. And so I, you know, I state, for example, right here that the, you know, I'm, I'm quoting the Egyptologist Serge Sonaran, who says that thus the revelations of Ogotameli or of Bantu philosophy turn out to contribute precious information which helps us better understand certain aspects of Egyptian religious thought. But in this connection, there is little, if anything, that we can expect from a reading of Plato. Because a lot of people always ask, well, why do I make 
connections between Bantu and ancient Egypt. Be, there's there's many reasons why, but one of them is, and this is something that even Serge Sonaran, he's a European, and he's not he you can never you can never categorize him as an Afrocentric scholar. But he even recognizes that when you look at the Dogon, and that's where um, you know he's talking about the book, for example, uh, 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 of the Revelations of Ogotameli, um, and then of Bantu philosophy. Like you learn a lot about Egypt by studying those cultures, and we're able to in in you know in this day and age make the arguments more sound, you know, via linguistic arguments that demonstrate that the Egyptians and the Bantu speakers are related people. And so a lot of these cultural ideas were in fact inherited. And so um, I state it flies in the face of such authors such as Loke von der Veen et al. Uh, in Erico and Holmberg, 2009-103, when discussing the alleged relationship of the Fong of West Africa and ancient Egyptians, who makes the following blanket statement. And so he states in, his, in, this, in this article, the alleged structural parallels essentially sound correspondences between ancient Egypt and black African languages lack any scientific basis. They are merely non-systematic, randomly chosen, chance similarities. Nowadays, languages are being compared with ancient languages. For example, Mboshi with ancient Egyptian. Core, therefore, basic lexicon is poorly represented Moreover, as for the alleged typological similarities, it is a well-known fact that this kind of data is insufficient for proving affiliation. So if you are, you know, just a lay person and you read this, you would think that these African scholars are just some rogue fringe scholars who don't know what the hell they're talking about. And on this point, this is all that he says in the text. So there's no demonstration. So, th so this this is a uh, this is exactly what Dr. Hillier was talking about. They never engage the scholarship; they just characterize it. So you have to, as a reader, as a critical thinker, when you're reviewing critiques of work. First, look for if they demonstrate the invalidity of the work in which they're talking about. And you have to know the difference between a, a characterization of works and an actual critique of the points in the work. And so he mentions here, nowadays languages are being compared with ancient languages. For example, in Boshi. He doesn't he doesn't want to name the name because you know who he's talking about? Dr. Teofalo Obinga, because Obinga's the only one who uh because that's his native language. So it's interesting that he would even he would even suggest that comparing Mbochi 
to ancient Egyptian is somehow invalid. And then knowing who the scholar is, see, in 1993, Teofalo Binga writ an entire text, over 300 something pages of scholarship comparing Mbochi to ancient Egyptian. He did this in all areas in phonology, morphology, grammar, lexicology, or vocabulary, everything. And so either this guy is incompetent in terms of understanding the work or he never read it. He's just upset at the audacity that Obinga is comparing Mbochi to Egyptian. And this brings about another point that for those of you who watched the video that um, Asa Hillier was talking about, what they'll try to do is try to limit what you can do in terms of your research. So they'll try to cut it off and say that is not valid to even even compare, for example, in the field of linguistics, to even look at Mbochi, a Bantu language in ancient Egyptian. That's not how science works. Science work is you have a research question, you set up the experiments, you um, make sure that you have your null hypothesis and that you control, you have a control group, and then you let the evidence speak for itself. There's no such thing as cutting off or, or setting the parameters on where and how somebody can do research. But Europeans feel that they can just do that and summarily dismiss without engaging critically the scholarship. And so when I read this, I went and looked them up and, and tried to see if, if, because he didn't give any examples in the text. And so I found a, a presentation of his um, titled, uh, what was the title? The Origins of the Fong, Language, Culture, Genes, Myth, and Reality. Because the Fong people, there are groups of them who have an oral tradition that say they come from the Nile Valley. They come from ancient Egypt. So he's trying to see if that argument is true. So he, he dismisses it ultimately, but in, in part, this is, you know, his, his linguistic arguments against. So Vanderveen, so this is the table, uh, I reproduced the table here, and he says, so he shows this, this table and you have these semantic conclusions or these, these semantemes on the far left-hand side. Then you have Mbochi, again, uh, Dr. Tilfalo Binga's language, and then you have Coptic and Ancient Egyptian. So in, in, Mbochi, in Mbochi, uh, Mbochi, now here he says Mbochi, but either one is fine. I just pronounce it the way Obingo pronounces it. He says Mbochi. So Mbochi, 
this word for snake is Enzo. And then he uh, shows Coptic, Ajo, and then in ancient Egyptian, Middle Egyptian, uh, Jet. But, you know, he puts here, but Proto-Bantu, Yoka. And then he puts name, Dina, Rina, Ren, and then Yina for Proto-Bantu. And then he says palm tree, Abia, Ba, Bae, but Proto-Bantu, Bida. And then he puts under there no regular correspondences, chance similarities. Now, again, if you are a lay person and you have no background whatsoever in linguistics and you were looking to make an argument against Theophilo Binga, even though he doesn't name him, but that's that's who he's talking about, Theophilo Binga. He's not realizing that Theophile Binger has an entire text with, with, with hundreds of vocabulary comparisons in Mbochi and ancient Egyptian, where, where is nothing but regular sound meaning correspondences established in that text. So if you was to read like a random article of Obinga where he's just throwing out a few correspondences, that is because he's already done the larger legwork and he's just referring to that. So, but he says no regular chance correspondences. So again, um, what I'm doing here is giving a brief lesson on why you, you always have to critique the critique. You just don't accept the critique. And so um, I state here, how can one declare that these are chance similarities when one didn't even attempt to compare, for example, in Egyptian, a series of words with the same consonant sequences? He just picks random words and then says that there's no regular sound correspondences. He didn't even attempt to do that type of work. And I said, these are not representative examples. Firstly, one wouldn't compare Proto-Bantu in Yoka, um, snake and intestinal worm with Middle Egyptian Dejet, but with Nyik, snake serpent. And I give the source, Faulkner Budge. And you can find it in Chiluba as in Yoka. So in, in, in Egyptian, they have the word Yoka for snake. And it's found in the Chiluba. To confirm the correspondences we observe in Middle Egyptian, Nyik, in, um, to punish, to be punished. And then we compare this with Chiluba in Yuka, chastise, punish, to hate. So you know what I did? I, I not only show it in Bantu in the language, but I also confirm it with other examples of the sound correspondence. So we continue. The BLR database has Gina name uh, and G to call. The form uh, in Chicam is actually a dialectical variant of the word ker or kara in the name from the word kar to, or, or kla meaning to, um, to say. The form in Bantu and Chicam is palatalized from the K or the Ka version. And then I go to give a series of regular sound meaning correspondences. So I show here between, for example, in Egyptian and in Chiluba. So you have an Egyptian Rin name, and then Dienna name in Chiluba. The R sound has been dropped. And, and I can prove this by doing other regular sound meaning correspondences. So we have an Egyptian Rin, young one and then we have in chiluba ana young we have in 
Egyptian, Renin, it's a partial reduplication, to rejoice, to praise. Then we have in Chiluba, Ana, commend, praise, celebrate, exalt. Anyina, admire, walk, wonder at, speak with admiration of. Ren, to embrace. Anya, embrace, hug, kiss, securely fasten. These are regular. And not only is the presence of these words regular, the, the loss of the R, the initial R sound for these words are regular in Shiluba. So this validates the arguments here made by um, Obinga. And I do the same thing for the palm and then I go and I attack Shu. There's a, and, and I'm in here. And so there's a, um, a, a linguist by the name of Russell Screw who wrote a text, The Use and Misuse of Language in the Study of African History. And he attempts to provide a sound critique of Shekanti Jope's um, parent genetic or the, uh, the relationship, the parent relationship, you know, of uh, Pharaonic Egyptian and uh, Negro African languages. And, and so he attacks the scholarship there, but school actually has little to no knowledge of the ancient Egyptian lexicon in things. And he, just like the other guy, summarily dismisses and says the conclusion will be that Diop presents virtually no lexical resemblances between Egyptian and Wolof of the type that can be found between languages that are generally accepted as being genetically related. And then he goes on and then I go and debunk every single one of his critiques and show you where it can be found in Egyptian and in, in Wolof and regular sound meaning correspondences. But this is the type of work that you have to do. And so when, it, when, when people just dismiss, and I'm gonna stop sharing my screen. When, when people just dismiss offhand these, these scholars, you have to have the skill set in order to evaluate those scholars. Because nine times out of 10, when you examine their, uh, their critiques, you'll find that it cannot hold water and that they, they didn't know what the heck they were talking about. And so this this is what has to be done. So um, I'll, I'll open it up for comment from y'all. Yeah, it's a it's a good point. I totally agree with what you just basically said. If can I, I want to add something real quick because I, some people don't really understand what we were fighting, what our ancestors were fighting against. So you're talking about a time around the 1865s where the you know uh, the Civil War was taking place. Now you move a little bit further on, the Civil War is ended. And I want to read something from uh, the American Negro Academy, right? Um, this book is written by uh, Alfred Moss Jr. Um, and I told plenty of people to get it, but I'm on page seven. It says the second paragraph, it says, uh, throughout these years referring to, the, you know, after the Civil War, the white American intellectual community, I want to say that close, uh, you know, slowly, the white American intellectual community failed to challenge the increasing political, social, and economic displacement of black Americans, and in numerous instances, reinforced these trends. In the 1890s, there was a marked increase in anti-black publications. Many of these books, articles, and essays were the product of Southern efforts to strip blacks of political power, 
both real and potential and to restrict them to the bottom of the social order. But as uh, Rayford Logan has accurately observed, the effort was facilitated by the respectability of race, uh, racist thought in all sections of the country. Americans have long been acquainted with various strands of uh, what has been termed scientific racism. This involved a use of anthropology, Egyptology, craniology, phrenology, biblical criticism, ethnology, and anatomy to prove the inferiority of blacks and other non-Caucasians. In the post-Civil War period, this body of thought by um, appropriating large segments of Charles Darwin's evolutionary theory updated itself intellectually, acquiring a new vigor and persuasiveness. And then it goes on to say social Darwinism became the dynamic force that provided intellectual justification for the belief in the inferiority of the blacks. But we know that that's overturning how that worked. And then it, uh, I'm gonna leave it just right there because I don't wanna go too far in the book, but um, Moss is arguing exactly exactly what we're facing after post, well, in the post-Civil War era, where we have these intellectuals, small because they make up a small percentage of you know uh, blacks, who have this this type of education to even put forth publications are not allowed to even be recognized, and and, and here we are again when we're talking about uh, proving who we are, and and our existence in society, we have complications with people who haven't really properly understood the whole entire context of what the ancestors were arguing against, as far as with the with academia since academias for white people and they set the agenda. Mm-hmm. Brother Oh, uh, you know, like I'm not I, I never quick it out that to which correct book and respect. Um and then it's another Athena fights back. It was damn near like he had that mindset that I got to be super ready and I got to be ready for the responses. Uh, you don't have a lot of books written on responding to that. I think you got Lecky Wits and maybe one like that. But if you come to just, just book two alone, right? And you just look at the table of content, right? Um, it talks about before you even deal with uh, Greece, you got to deal with Creek. Right, and I talked about the temples that they had in Crete and those pylons, okay? And I also talk about when I went to the Baltimore School for the Arts, I had a design and art class, and in the design and art class, it was a post and lentil class, right? They didn't start with Egypt. So when I went, when, you know, so after I graduated from high school, went through what I went through and started studying, I look back in them days, some of my notes from the post and little class, and say, how the hell can you leave out Egypt when they was by far showing you superiority post and little? Like we know for sure, at, um, temples in Africa, they had these massive pylons. By the time you get to the island of Crete, you get these little itty bitty, you be like, man, you know they didn't invent it. And so if you want to study Greece, you got to go to the island of Crete. Look at the, look at the culture of the island of Crete. Look at the religion. 
and watch that influence. So right here it talks about in the table of contents, right? It says the uh, Crete before the palaces, 7,000 to 2100 BCE. See, this is my time period. This is how I like to study. You know what I'm saying? Like, is when I really get my rock. You know how I do a song. You feel that's my thing. So, you got you got pseudo internet. So, someone, uh, Sister Mika said that, uh, earlier. You got pseudo internet. <laughs> oh man, I ain't had that before. Hold on, I was talking about when we started. 7,000 BC. So we on the island of Creek at 7,000 BC. Chapter chapter one, right? Black Athena, book two. It says Creek before the palace is 7,000 to 2100 BCE. The diffusionist and the isolist debate. Mm -hmm. uh, then Creek religion in early Bronze Age. Then it gives you uh, the conclusion. Then it goes about Egyptian influence on Batonia and the Polynesians in the third millennium BCE. Basaltic mythological and legendary evidence. So he's not even dealing with Greece right now. He's showing the influence on the cultures that Greece would later on come up. Right? That's a hell of a move. Also talks about if we go to, uh, let's say, um, uh, chapter six, the old the, the old palace period in Crete and Egyptian middle uh, middle kingdom, twenty one hundred to seventeen thirty, early Minoan. You should know about the Minoans before we start talking about the Greeks. If you're not understanding Crete and the Minoans and the role they played, then you bugging. You shouldn't even get into the conversation. Uh, land and, and, and spirals of the Cretan palaces, Creek writing system, uh, cultic symbols, and early um, Creek, possible Antolian origin of the bull cult, and just so on. It talks about the case, the case against each Egyptian influence. You should read those arguments. Uh, survival of the bull cult and Cretan uh, conversationalist conclusion. Uh, let me see what else. The, the, the significance of the inscription as evidence for Egyptian empire in Asia during the Middle Kingdom. You feel me? This is before we even get to Greece. Right, this whole book too, it talks about the Hiscos. This is where I got a, a wealth of knowledge from the Hiscos. Um, Hiscos, material culture, Hiscos, biblical captivity, Egypt. Um, and this is the one when they talk about the actual horses and you know, conversation me and the brother was having. I told him, man, once I my source, I'm going to find it. But they eat that a whole joint to that. But let me see, uh, 10, chapter 10, Egyptian, Mesopotamia, Levant, contacts with the Aegean, documentary evidence, Egyptian place names referring to the Aegean, uh, etymology of the word Dan, okay, accuracy in the Egyptian inscriptions and tomb paintings. Why did the Cretan princesses bring tribute? This is in uh, chapter 10. Why did the Cretan princesses bring tribute to Egypt? We know why you bring tribute to somebody else. Because you're subservient to them. Don't act like that mm -hmm. wasn't down because it was. Dating of Mesoan. Mesoan. 
Did you hear me? Yeah, yeah. You had froze up uh, for a second. Go ahead. Oh goodness! Well, I got to watch that. Okay. Why did Cretan tribute to Egypt? Okay. Uh, dating of the Masoan domination of Crete. We know the Masoans uh, dominated Crete. Crete and the Masoans mission to Egypt. The statue base of Amenhotep III. Contact between Egypt and the Aegean in the late 18th and 19th century. Okay, the summary of evidence from Egyptian documents and painting contain Europe uh, uh, documents. Fusion. Chapter 11. I mean, so you you know what I mean? You can't just write. I mean, come on, man. Like, like I don't know how she did it, y'all. She did it in one book. Y'all. I don't know. Man. I, I'm, I'm perplexed at this point that we ain't even get to this point. This book right here. Yeah. Where you know what I'm saying? I saw smacking people in the head about farming and grinding stones. Most people don't know what a damn grinding stone is. Most people mischaracterize the uh, the, the argument of farming. Um, I, uh, me and um, Jeff was having a conversation of that, right? And I had to had to realize where the fuck is my sources at? Excuse my language. And you know, I, I've been gathering together over the last couple of days. But what I like to tell a listening audience is, don't get faked out by farming. That's the fake out. Uh, sometimes mm-hmm. you should farming represents failure and crops to grow on their own. So, so we know for sure that the first place on planet Earth as of 2020 to take those harvestings and have those grind bones of the grains in the millets, we find them in Africa. We find them on the Nile. We go back to 70,000 years, 50,000 years, where they actually, you know, they got they they also developed the microliths. Right, where you put in sticks and you cut down the grass, the sickles, where you cut the grass down. So they wasn't even on even on the farm because it was already gone. They just harvested, right? So people play the game. Well, this is the first place where they farm. Wait a minute, bro. You might exactly. I broke up again. Yeah, you broke up again. But uh, no, but I, I was just I was agreeing with you. I was just saying exactly, and then I stopped. But yeah, then, you, so then you did start breaking up. <laughs> okay, yeah. So I was talking about the microliths and, and 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 these things they found that actually chopping the sickles to actually chop down the grains and stuff like the grinding stones that they found. Can go uh, maybe a hundred a hundred thousand years ago in the cave they found tools grinding tools they found the millet on the tools don't even play with me with that that's some shit we used to talk about on the old blog talk videos i can bring yeah. all that so if you want to get super technical and play the farming card that that goes for everybody right then y'all can yeah. play that but i'll make the argument that farming ain't as slick as y'all think it is it represents failure go ahead Asal. just want to throw uh, it, it, it it reminds me here's a here's a book that I, I recommend everyone read is by Dr. Kimboidende Kiabonseki Pukiao. And it's called Self-Healing Power in Therapy. Um, it's like old teachings, you know, saying from, from Mother Africa, whatnot. It's like the subtitle, something like that. I may be, be murdering that. But in it, he there's a section of it where he's talking about farming in the Congo and how farming was done and how it was done more so in a wild context and how Europeans would come in in the Congo thinking that the people weren't using the land, not understanding native farming techniques because they didn't do the type of farming 
that um, that required you to clear acres and acres of land and then then grow this monocrop like you see in you know in the midwest of the united states if you ever drive on the east coast like in in pennsylvania or something to that nature and see uh you know these big long farms they didn't do farming like that and so it's ironic now that like there's a there's a second book that i recommend it's called biomimicry by janus uh, or jane banus or something like that she talks about how the current farming methods are unsustainable and that the best farming methods is what they call perennial farming that's when you try to make the farm look more like nature with a whole bunch of everything in it and there's no monocrops the same way that they were doing in congo um before the the european came and disturbed you know their model and so it goes to to show that 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 system of farming which you were talking about was still in use in africa and um and so you know there's there's you know like a whole show could be done on that uh we got our brother Sheffron in the in the green room. I'm gonna add him now. Peace, brother Sheffron. What's up? Can you hear What's me? Up, Pete? Yeah, I can hear y'all. All right, all right. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Happy New Year. Same. <laughs> Go ahead, finish. I was listening to what you were saying about agriculture. And um, yeah, I, I was done as far as the agriculture and and stuff is uh concerned. But just putting just just giving um a, a kind of a modern context on yeah oh okay um giving a modern context on what brother uncle saying in terms of the the african still using that method of farming and if and if you're looking for farming in the context of clearing out long stretches of land doing monocrop you you didn't we didn't have that type of farming and so um, are you sharing a screen? I'm sharing a screen. Okay, hold on one sec. Then we'll bring uh, Sheffron in and get his commentary. Okay. So this is from the Journal of Nature. All right. And it just simply talks about 2009, right? And it just talks about Stone Age Sargon found in an African cave. Harvesting the wild grains may have begun more than 100 years ago, okay? Humans may have been being bred 100,000 years ago, says researcher, of grounds from Sargon grass, stone tools in most Mozambique cave. So I just want to kind of just put that in there. Uh, Y'all can just type it in Stone Age Sergon found in Africa, and you know there's you know there's other articles that 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 kind of um, you know ties uh, uh, point making uh, justification uh, on the justification method. Uh, Sergon, right? You know all these things in the 
so that we don't get bogged down all the time and that you know farming was the was the a side all the time that's not true you got you got uh, um fishing communities on the now with oldest hooks 70,000 80,000 years ago so just mix it up man I think they overemphasized the farming thing because they knew they could go to the Middle East. You know, humans kind of picked it up. But in Africa, food sources and gathering food and putting it together. Boy. But I'm going to leave all that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to move on. You don't have to move. Yeah. You want to carry it. Yeah, something, something like there's a vortex of energy sweeping right <laughs> over your area. It is disrupting the signal. <laughs> we hear every word. I heard the word. Seventy thousand years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, go ahead, brother Shepherd. Oh no, no, it's a good conversation. Sean has said something in the uh, in the chat. Um, <laughs> you know saying you know that i, I think is a over see y'all getting into the particulars of it mm -hmm. and that's good but for most people once you hear greek once you hear egypt greece the conversation gets pushed i work in a barbershop right mm -hmm. so i'm gonna tell you how african americans look at statements like that Black people started everything. Greek <laughs> culture was started by black people. All they have to do is hear one comment in passing and they blow that up to that. So if when you don't define that and break that down and show that, no, the Greeks said that they were influenced, right? Mm -hmm. By these cultures. That's one thing, but to say the, the whole stolen legacy, those things get blown out of proportion. I fight against that because I worked in a barbershop. It'd be kids in there. These kids are going to go to college, right? They're, they're going to take philosophy courses with crazy uh, um, blackology type thoughts in their mind, and they're going to be battling with their professors with no basis to stand on over pseudo shit that they heard in the barbershop when they was a kid, you know, from an adult. Like, because y'all explaining it very well but it's not explained to our people like that it's ex all you hear is black people started everything they started the greek civilization then if you read stuff like um if you ain't nobody reading martin bernard like really like this is a nerd community like y'all are into that but in the barbershop, nobody is reading that. Black people believe in the barbershop. Black people came here before Columbus. Yeah, all of these things that is not put. And then, see, the problem with that is, and I'm, I'm going to um, stop. Once you hear black people came before Columbus, it's easier for black people to believe when the Hebrew Israelites say, uh, we was already here and in the, in the tribes. All of that gets merged together. You have to be able to break that stuff up and don't speak so blatantly saying that Africans did all of these things because the Greeks gave the Egyptians credit. The mm -hmm. Y'all say that's the ancient model, right? Mm -hmm. They gave them credit. We know the Egyptians 
knew a lot about uh, plotting the stars and the heavenly bodies, right? We we knew we know that they uh, had certain advanced forms of math because they built things according to their mathematics. So it was ancient cultures that learned from them, right? But we know that the Greeks, right, separated their philosophy from their religion. You learn that in philosophy 101, they went against the state. So that was something in history for the first time that was seen in history. It might have been done before in history, but we don't have no record of it. But we, so when, when you start philosophy, when you say that Greeks like George G.M. James, you know, uh, stole uh, ancient Greece philosophy and stolen Egyptian philosophy. When you hear that, you won't think that Aristotle and all of them took their stuff from the Egyptians. So that's all I'm saying. And, 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 and it's not accurate. That's all I'm saying. Well, I'm going to have a little pushback. On on your on your comment that we are nerds here, mm -hmm. but in the barbershop, you know, it's another thing. The simple fact that they even bring that up in the barbershop showing that even in the hood, there's elements of nerdism. <laughs> it's just it's yeah. just levels to this. Thanks. So if, if you in the if you in the barbershop talking about Greek philosophy is still a legacy, obviously there's an interest. In, in in history and culture there. Thanks. And they're getting the information from somewhere. So they under even if they came in there with the Glock in, you know, the right, the right. the they, there's 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 some inner nerd in them that that is compelled to this information. So the question is then how do we get the the proper knowledge and perspective to these laypersons, you know and how do we fight against those vibrant personalities? Because uh, what's his name? Um, young Pharaoh got, you know, when he do a show, he got 10,000 views live. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, when we when we talking about this, this, this detailed, you know, uh, I don't know if we got to get a stripper to come on on the show and, and then just sneak <laughs> the information in or whatever. But, you know, this is what we're fighting against. And, and just lastly, to and I understand the concern because I was one of those people. So remember, I came into college as a Hebrew Israelite. So I would be in my history classes and philosophy classes arguing with the professors Indeed, talking about no. we the wrong as all get out, but that we the Hebrews, this is the 12 tribes chart. You know, I'm from the tribe of Judah. And yada, 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 you know, and and so I understand. But this is this is why we have these these platforms. So when they're when they are interested, they can come out. And this is one of the reasons why, like, I'm doing the film, because we're going to have to do more visual, like like eye catching things, you know, and, you know, we having these long conversations you know now but there's certain things that we're just going to have to put in some bite-sized chunks that that is visually and you know appealing and stimulating that gets them to want to come to the to, to the deeper stuff because as i mentioned you know most folks ain't read um and know the details and the specific arguments that dr george gm james is making he made the same arguments that bernal made 
He just didn't call it Aryan model versus ancient model. He didn't have that language. And 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 what's his name's uh, text is a lot thicker. And you know we don't like to read, um, you know, uh, text. So we may have to do some some something about you know like probably this thin or smaller. Facts. That's and give them. And just just the summary of everything's and probably just hand them out and give them out in the hood like that's, you know, could be be something, you know, where they ain't got to spend no money, you know, but it's still relevant information. And this is where you go to to, to learn more. You know, it's like, it's a lot that we have to do, because, again, as the, the video I suggested that we watched before this, it's a propaganda machine that is not only uh has large numbers of supporters it is those supporters fund them and so you have people in the black community who who think that because we take donations you know on youtube or something to this nature that we somehow uh are selling out and trying to exploit and these folks have whole companies donating thousands and millions of dollars to be anti-african and this is what we got to fight. So how do we fight, you know, these individuals who have the big publishing houses and the universities and things of this nature with the misinformation? And then you don't want to have people, um, you have people trying to down those who financially support programs like this with the Masi Warriors, the Pseudo Killers, Amara Squad, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we're fighting on both ends. And so this is this is one of the reasons why like I do what I do and I'm always stressing methodology. I'm not saying that everybody's correct. What you have to the most important thing for not not you in particular, I'm just saying you as an us, a, a, a collective you um, have to understand is that the methodology is the most important thing. And if you understand methodology and be able to to critique line by line and go point for point, no matter what, you'll be able to get the, you know, what is valuable from a text and you'll be able to dismiss what, what cannot be supported. You know, uh, and not necessarily because even the way that they word it may not that it can't be supported. It's that they don't have enough evidence now to to make a more stronger or to hold a stronger position you know, on a particular point. And sometimes, you know, if it's an honest scholar, they'll say that, like more research needs to be done, you know, to to validate this hypothesis and, and stuff to that nature. But, you know, a lot of us will hear that and think that they're making a a, a, a factual statement and run with it. And that's what I but, like uh, Diop for. Diop was famous for making that statement. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, famous I, for making that statement. I, I got this book here. Yeah. African origin of civilization. What what is good about this text is like he has whole sections replying to his critics, just like what you see in Martin Bernal. Like he has a whole book replying to his critics, and so that's what I'm saying. Just because there's a critique out there doesn't mean the critique is valid. You have to look at the responses to the critiques, and you know. So like his his last chapter here, well, not the last one. Well, I think it's the last one. No, it's kind of second to the last uh, is reply to a critic. But he has more where he's replying to other critics. That's what he do. And so that's 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 the nature of a good scholar. 
Like he's looking at his the the opposition and he's responding to them point for point. And so this is one of the reasons why we recommend not only just for the general information about Africa, but on on how to do scholarship and respond to critiques. And I'm sorry, um, brother. Um, well, he's in the background. All right, go ahead. Can you hear me? Yeah. So you said something about 20 minutes ago, and it was it was about farming and how there's ways that we were doing things that are yet to be discovered. The complete domination of European societies over the last, what, three, four hundred years. Right. And we got to take that into light. So we, you know, as, as science, science, science advocates, um, we know that nothing is stuck and we have to leave room for uh, new discoveries. And if y'all stay in West Africa on archaeological digs on a regular basis, then think again, because you sure as hell on your money for it. If, you know, archaeological digs just don't pop up. Uh, being in Uh, <laughs> right now, we, we being as you froze up, a more concerned. Yeah, then I don't know. Uh, yeah, it looked like you kind of back. You hear me now? Yeah. Man, get on. You on a laptop? It sounds like he probably right. on the phone or something. I don't know. You need yeah, a laptop. laptop. Uh, you need all the tabs. No, no, no. I want a laptop, yo. You gotta, you gotta end some of them tabs. Stream, <laughs> y'all. Oh, videos playing in the background. Hey, what you think that's what it is? You think it's the tabs? I'm telling you. You got too much stuff running at one time. It's killing you. Yeah, you you may have to uh, not do your video feed for the for the duration right. of the uh, the conversation, so we can. All right, how's it working now? So it, can you hear me now? Yep. Yeah, you're good. Yeah, your video good, is right? taking too much of your bandwidth up. All right, so yeah, the hell with that. Okay, so. I'm not doing the show now as you can see my face. No, I'm joking. It's <laughs> 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 about saying my face around here. So hold on. So damn. Okay. Point here. If you think they're on archaeological digs deep in the Sudan for Egyptian artifacts or in West Africa, digging deep and all that, you're bananas. But people have to finance those projects. Uh, certain schools do it, billionaires do it all the time. But 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 why the hell would 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 being as finance a uh, uh, archaeological dig when Africa need medicine and need other things? So so those things take precedence first in certain countries before you start digging. And so the African is going to have to do this. The African American is going to have to find ways to say, okay, I want to support a like like people being as like Jay Z, right? Oprah Winfrey. You know, if they do invest money in Africa, it's going to be to try to help them out on the bed on on the essentials. Now I don't know damn archaeological dig. So if you think that all the artifacts that will ever be found about Egypt, 
about West Africa and all that is there. Man, y'all, but that's crazy, man. You got to leave room for that. You, it's just important. Like the Egyptian thing, we talked about this or so. And, you know, that's one of our favorite arguments, uh, Chef. When we talk about them damn mummies that they found in the Delta and tried to act like it. I'm saying this is a journal of science. They tried to act like that, that was the, you know, how we found the people and we did the DNA test. And then in one line at the end of the damn article, well, really, yo, it's not down deep south, so we don't know yet. Okay, dude, but you just, you just talked me to death in the Journal of Science for the whole article. You impressed me, and then you get to the end and say, yeah, well, you know, that don't count for the whole thing. Really? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> really? Come on, man. So, look, man, we need to put our money where our mouth is for that. But but I can't even see sponsoring an archaeological dig. People need vaccines, people need medicine, infrastructure, like there, there's level of importance. Europeans, you know what I mean? They, man, they, they finance their whole way of living off of the backs of black people. The whole industrial age, we, we could say that the industrial age was powered off of the backs of African free power, free working. Mm -hmm. So they think, of course they could do these. That's extra, man, digging up other people's stuff. Exactly. <laughs> That's not the first thing viable civilizations going to civilizations to do. Start going around the world digging up shit. That ain't what you do first. You get resources, you, you get your thing powered right. You you get your infrastructure together. And then you start robbing and stealing and piling stuff in the museum. <laughs> I, just to, yeah, I just saw we just don't really get the, the 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 scope of what's really going in front of us, bro. I just wanted to kind of throw it out there. I wanna um add quickly. Uh, going back to to Sheffron's comment, um, or his response to my comment about you know leaving it open, you know, saying for further research in terms of questions and whatnot, and uh, I have in my hand civilization of barbarism, Shekhanti Joe. And the last chapter is a very, very short chapter. It's chapter 18. And it's Inventory of Negro African Roots in Classical Greek, subtitled A Method to Follow. And he's bringing out the fact that there are a lot of words in the Greek language that don't have Indo-European etymologies. And he did a cursory analysis on some of the major ones and found that they have correspondences not only in the ancient Egyptian language, but of course in the Wolof language. And so, you know, he, he states here, here then is a method that one could follow in searching for the Negro African words that in the course of these contacts between languages, and particularly in these translations could have passed into the Greek language. One, after analysis, the Greek term must not be of Indo-European or Semitic origin. In some cases, it can be both African and Semitic. Two, it must be attested to in the Egyptian language. Three, the idea is, so in other words, it, it, the, the, the lexicon must exist in some other African language and Egyptian and um, the, the, the Greek language. The idea is that the 
that it is attested to in Egyptian, in Greek, and in one more modern Negro African languages, to the exclusion of the Indo-European and the Semitic languages. Otherwise, check the empty boxes with question marks so that the research will continue. Thus, the concepts that would be passed on from the Negro African languages, particularly from Egyptian to classical Greek, would deal mainly with the different domains of civilization uh, and of science, mathematics, physics, chemistry, engineering, astronomy, medicine, philosophy, etc. He says the following list has, as at this point, only a suggestive value. So he's he's showing that you know even though he's made a list that is right now is only probative. So you know don't take this as there's more work that needs to be done. The Greek words cited here are not of Indo-European origin. See P. Uh, Chan train. And so, so he, he's giving, in other words, he's giving you a, a, uh, an assignment. Like, you know, I got some other stuff. I'm, I'm dealing with some other work. But this would be a good research project for some of y'all in the future. Here's my suggested methodology to see if a lot of these Greek words, because that would attest to the influence of the Egyptians on the Greek. So if they're adopting these, these words, especially in these arenas of philosophy and science that are not found in Indo-European languages, you cannot make an argument that there was no influence of the Egyptians on the Greeks. And so, you know, this is, this is, this is the level of scholarship that you're getting from Diop and why people need to read the text. But it's secondly and lastly, that's exactly what Martin Bernal does. So his last Black Athena book was building off of exactly what Diop suggested. And he had been making these hints in volume one and in volume two, and even in his response book, that a lot of the Greek terminology comes from Egypt. And he adds the Semites, more specifically the Phoenicians. And so he does an entire book. I don't know if it's based on, but doing exactly what Sheikh Antijoke, you know, um, encouraged they were future. Thinking the uh, same. Yeah. They, they had the same line of thinking. Exactly. And so when, you know, we... Uh, again, it'd be so easy, uh, be quick to dismiss our scholars and stuff, or even dismiss Bernal. And he's just doing and continuing the work that um, our African scholars were doing already. So, a lot of the conclusions that he came to, Diop and Obinga already came to, and Bilolo and them before him. And so, um, so I just wanted to end that there. And there was a question. Uh, in the chat I wanted to raise, hold on. Uh, Michael Irvin says, do we lose anything when we prop up Greece, even when we say Kemet Egypt influenced it? What about the rest of the continent? What do we miss when we only focus on the Europeans hold or, or what the Europeans hold in esteem? I think I that, I'm sorry? No, I, I said I like that, I read it. I didn't quite understand. Okay. That's yeah, a good now. point. That's a good point. Um, and I think this is why it's important to actually read the African scholars, mm -hmm. because they don't only focus mm -hmm. on Egypt. 
They use Egypt as the starting point because it is the oldest recorded civilization that actually had writings where the people were talking amongst themselves. So from there, we do comparative studies with philosophy and ideas out of West Africa and Central Africa and Southeast Africa, et cetera, et cetera. That's why, like I quoted at the, uh, the beginning of this conversation, Serge Sonoran, who says that a reading of Olga Tomelli and of Bantu philosophy will inform us more about ancient Egypt than a reading of Greeks. And so it's the, the, the discussion of Egypt, at least from all the Afrocentric scholars that I know, personally and non-personally, they all are having this discussion of ancient Egypt with West Africa and Central Africa, just the whole of Africa. Because there's a, there's a history and all of this stuff is connected. Like there's a reason why the, 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 the Songhai and Mali empires and, um, and uh, Ghana, the original Ghana empire, all of them show up after ancient Egypt falls. There's a connection there in terms of trade. This, this trade that the Egyptians had a stronghold of collapsed when, when the Persians and the Romans and the Greeks took over in that area. Now there's a power grab. And as a result, they, these, these, these folks started realizing where the ancient Egyptians were getting some of their stuff from. So this, this, the fall of Egypt sparks the first scramble for Africa. That's when you start seeing all the Romans and all the, the, the Arabs and all that going down the east. This is how you get the Swahili coast and all of that in East Africa and them trying to sail. This is the reason why Christopher Columbus had to try to sail across the whole entire of Africa because the Arabs were in control of uh, the Mediterranean then. So they couldn't just go and travel, you know, to get to India to get the spices because Africans were getting products and stuff from Indians and the inner Africans. They already had trade going on amongst themselves, but they couldn't go and penetrate because the, the Arabs and stuff ran that section. So they had to go around. So this started as the first, like everything is connected. There's a single history. And so you can't talk about West Africa without talking about Egypt. You got all those, for example, the main currency in West Africa for a time was cowrie shells. Cowrie shells come from Egypt and the Sudan and that whole East Coast. That's where they got it from because they were trading with people from Egypt. And so, so like all of this stuff has to be, you know, put in context in terms of these these conversations. Go ahead, brother. So, yeah, um, uh, maybe about five years ago, we did a show on the Amaral Squad, a blog talk. And we talked about the trade routes that was going down from Egypt to Chad. You remember that? Mm hmm. So if you and, and I ain't talking about no loose, you know how you like to make a connection. I'm like, oh, damn, so I got to be a super duper scholar. And the hell are you talking about, man? I'm talking about pots, 
right? All on the roads, Egyptians insignia, hundreds of pots on this road leading all the way to Chad, right? Uh, archaeological survey, the whole nine y'all. So if you mm -hmm. can get to Chad, then you can get to Nigeria. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You can get to the Republic of Congo, all that once you hit Chad. And so we, we forget about the immense wealth that the Egyptians occupied. We talking about food basket of that particular time period. We talking about um, just raw materials coming from different parts of Africa. I mean, it's I, I mean that the source of their power, it is the trading of inner Africa. I would make that argument. I would make that argument that the source of their power is really into Africa, right? So they had no problems with, with which end up trapping them. You know, when, when invaders would come to start to migrate back down the river into inner Africa. Right, and I, and I think that's where your story is going to pick up in. When invaders start to come in, where did they go? Diaz talked about that, how they kept pressing us, and, and even nature, they pressed us back into inner Africa. Like, that's not, that wasn't, you know what I'm saying, uh, above the norm of things to do and above the possibilities. So I think it's important for us to understand that we can prove and validate that the Egyptians traded with Chad, the donkey routes, right? I, 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 I tell you, I'm telling you this. I'm gonna take about a week and I'm gonna find those sources I had. And you're gonna say, wow. You feel me? So mm -hmm. the source of Egyptian power is that. And to answer that brother's question real fast, man, Egypt reached three golden ages, man. Now, <laughs> if you wanna argue whether they're using European measuring stick, okay. All right. But they reached three golden ages, man. That's in science, arts. Everything was there. And, you know, we went to the museum. I saw you was there. We go to the museum and you start looking mm -hmm. at the West African art. You're like, damn, did the Egyptians steal that? I'm going to end right there. <laughs> I'm oh, end. they. Right I'm, there. I'm, 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 I'm getting ready to uh, do another publication. Uh, I have a book coming out on Orisha in ancient Egypt. And. I'm going to do another one on the, the leopard society, you know, the, the egg pay and all of that. And I'm, I'm just giving you a preview here um, of, of like, you know, this is why we, we like the artifacts. See, I, I use the linguistics to back up certain things. And like, we can tell that the priesthood of a moon coming out of the Nile Valley reached Nigeria. And you can tell by, for example, like like with the like the early terracotta and the worship of the ram, which is they they the same word for ram that they use in uh, ancient Egypt, they use in um, Nigeria, Benin, and in Cameroon. And you see like the hotep um, offering tables their version of it and these artifacts are dated between the 12th and 15th century also uh you know even with the with the particular style necklaces that you find in in, in kemet they they brought them there with them like it was a whole guild of 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 potters and metallurgists and we're going to put all that stuff together. You know, even the God Bess 
um, made its way into uh, Nigeria, Cameroon area. And, and what's, what's ill of that, you still have people like, for example, the Azandi people that, in, that are uh, now located in uh, the Central African Republic, you know, just right kind of next to, is right under Chad, right next to Cameroon, you know, above the Democratic Republic of Congo in, in that central area. These folks are from the Sudan. There are a lot of folks who are from the Sudan who live in Nigeria that, that didn't get there by car or plane. Like their people migrated from back in the day into these areas. This idea that, that people from the Nile Valley didn't go back and forth you know, in central and in, 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 in the lower parts of East Africa is unfounded. Like the people are still there. They still speak languages that are even for, you know, uh, those who adopt the Niger Congo and all this. They're not those languages. And some people who migrated adopt the Bantu languages. And so there's a whole, you know, uh, history of, of works and stuff with, with actual artifacts and things that, um, that, that people aren't reading or don't have necessarily access to. Because a lot of times we don't buy those big museum art books. You know, we want to buy the little paperbacks that we can get easily off of, you know, um, in Barnes and Noble and stuff like this. Like, no, the jewels are going to be in those, those hard to find texts. And so it's, it's the job of people like myself who, who are making certain arguments to bring this stuff out. That's why we appreciate, for example, Wabinga, who can read the Greek and translate it into English, the, the direct um, sources where the Greeks are telling you where to go and how much it's going to cost and how long you should stay there to study. You know, a lot of us wouldn't have had access to that because we don't speak, you know, I know Greek letters and I, I can I can technically read and sound off all the Greek, but I don't understand all the words. Um, but we have scholars like that who 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 have taken that time to learn that and to bring this information to the public. And that's essentially what this is. It's like we we have to do a better job of bringing those those pertinent details to the public. Uh, you have anything to say, Brother Sean? Mm -mm. I'm having a little fun in the chat. <laughs> All right, Brother Shepherd. Your your I'm mic muted. is muted. Oh, no, I was listening to you and go back and forth. That was some good information. That's something I ain't ever even... Well, I heard the... Uh, the, um, the, the recent findings of... Um, uh trade route with Chad. I heard about that, mm -hmm. but um other than that, I ain't look into it. All right. Uh hold on one second. Uh this is a good question. Uh from Michael Irvin again. Um yeah, cool. saying, yeah that's it. I'm sorry. <laughs> So he says, thank you for this. So we are certain that the ideas went from Kemet to the rest of Africa, but not the other way around. It's, it's a bit of both. It just depends on what time period you're talking about. And so it, uh, it, this is something that I stress in my text. 
that when you're looking at the similarities, for example, between Egypt and, and, and the rest of Africa, you have to, you have to consider it or contextualize it within these three particular hypotheses. One that is chance, meaning that the stuff just looks the same or the ideas just emerge, just chance. They're independent innovations in whatever particular region across Africa. So you always have to consider that. Secondly, that it is um, diffusion, meaning that it's, it's one group diffused, you know, all across, you know, wherever, you know, their reach was. And that this information, these ideas, these techniques, these products were the result of, you know, either migrations or just trade, for example, like intermarriages, like things of that nature. So, um, so you have to consider that. And then lastly, you have to consider that certain ideas and cultural motifs and philosophy and semantics are the result of just a common heritage. So it's not uh, the result of independent innovation. It is not the result of diffusion, but it's the result of all of these different groups shared a common heritage. And those ideas, beliefs, and practices survived generation after generation as that parent community began to diversify and spread out across the continent. So this is why um, the linguistic argument is very important. So we do the linguistic argument so that we can eliminate chance as a hypothesis and we can eliminate diffusion as a hypothesis. So we want to know what are the ideas and things that were inherited from the common ancestor. From that, once we've lined all of that out, then we can look at what are innovations and then what was possibly diffused. So there's a whole lot going on when we're doing this type of research. And then secondly, we have to understand that African history is long. Like it's, it's not even imaginable how long African history is. You gotta remember that African history essentially is human history because Africa is the birthplace of humanity. So there was a lot going on in the continent for 150,000, uh, uh, between 125 and 150,000 years before the, the, the first Homo sapiens sapiens decided to leave what we today call the continent of Africa. So there's a lot of migrations and interactions and wars and, you know, deaths and marriages and sharing of ideas and uh, innovations in terms of technology and all of this other kind of stuff going on for thousands and thousands of years. And so the last major event outside of the transatlantic and the Arab slave trades was the greening of the Sahara. And you had migrations going into the Sahara 
And these people were living and migrating and trading with one another all up and down the Sahara and Big Lake Mega Chad and going into, you know, the 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 population in the, what we call the now Valley today was sparse because it it didn't have a privileged position over all the other rivers that were going in what is now the Sahara and the, and the green lushness and things there. But as the monsoon rains stopped, you know, after the last glacial period, you know, which which took all the moisture, you know, from the Mediterranean area, the the monsoon rains subsided and just started being kind of more landlocked in Central East Africa. And so now the Sahara, we're now calling the Sahara is drying up again. And it's causing folks to migrate, the ones who survive, in different directions. Now, the Nile River becomes important. It has a privileged position now because it's one of the, the, the only water sources in that area. Others diffuse and, and stopped in Lake Chad. Others diffused and stopped in Nigeria and migrated further into Cameroon and all this other kind of stuff. So there's there's ideas and philosophies and things that existed in the Sahara area that ultimately makes its way into the Nile Valley, into Nigeria and things of this nature. So how do we distinguish those potential culture facts? from that time period versus what is directly, you know, um, coming from ancient Egypt. And so you have ideas that makes its way into Egypt from these areas, but then Egypt falls, you know, they have, they go through periods of drought. They go through periods of war. When people, when you think about, think about all the wars that happens in Africa, where do, do the people just stand there and, and just get killed? No, whole villages and families migrate. And so you got to think about all those invasions, not only coming from the Sudan into Egypt, but especially coming from the, the Delta region and further into Mesopotamia. And so now that Egypt is weakened, a lot of these people are migrating. This is how the collagen, who, who used to live heavily in the Delta, moves through the Sudan. There's a remnant of them still in the Sudan. Now there's a lot of them in Kenya, in Uganda, in, um, in the western parts of Ethiopia, in these regions here. You know, all migrating from, from this period. Some of them continue on into the Congo. Some of them continue on into the Central African Republic and going into Nigeria. And some move further west into what is uh, now today known as Ghana. Others took a northern route and, um, and ended up in what is Morocco and we got pushed further down during some wars and stuff like this and ended up being, you know, integrated into the societies of the Wolof and the Sierra and those individuals. And we got oral traditions and whole studies, you know, on that. And they have the, the language and the culture facts and the, and the, and the, and the words for metallurgy that didn't exist there that came from egypt you know there's there's whole studies done on these things so it's we got to look at uh africa as diverse and complex 
in terms of the history and its story. It's, it's, there's a lot of interweaving going on across Africa. So this is, this is the job of the historian to try to piece together and, 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 and sift through all of this to make a singular narrative. And that was always the, uh, the, the aim of Sheikh Hanzi Joke, to try to make a singular narrative of African history, keeping in mind these different complexities. Um, and I think Chancellor Williams does a good job, a very and excellent job telling this history and how uh, like the, the nature of nature, you know, uh, forced a lot of us to migrate and to split off and, and then this, you know, and uh, motivating certain wars because we're, we're fighting for access of fertile land and, and stuff to this nature. There's a whole bunch going on in 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 this study and it requires some serious analysis and focus and this is one of the you know the reasons why i bring certain scholars here so you know i can only write so much and study so much and so there's other scholars who are focusing on different other areas who can who can help piece these things together and there's there's new scholars emerging you know i'm privy to certain you know, PhD dissertations and, and things of this nature that, that are making these connections even stronger, you know, today. So like people like Diop and, and Clark and others, they set a foundation. And now you, you have scholars who are, are going into these fields, taking it seriously and building on, like uh, Dr. Jahi Issa just, just was in Senegal and he hit me up from Senegal. We, we, we did FaceTime. I'm sitting there um, uh, talking with a brother in Senegal uh, who, who's working on his thesis on, on, um, on the Wolof connections linguistically with, with, uh, with ancient Egyptian and, and trying to correct some of the things that Diop uh, uh, was, was stated in his initial uh, comparisons. And like they have a whole department of Egyptology and Egyptologists and, and folks working on on doing some serious work in Senegal at the Sheikh Anti um, uh University and everything. And uh, and so hopefully, you know, Brother Jahi Esau, he's he's saying that he he's trying to work to get those those works translated into English and and published. And so there's, there's a whole slew of scholarship going on in Africa that a lot of us are not privy to. And, and, and hopefully I can be of some help to introduce a lot of us to that scholarship and we can get a more uh, accurate picture of, of, of what's going on in things. And so I appreciate your comment. Um, dang it, I lost where it is. I could take it down. Uh, Hold on one sec. Uh, anybody else got something to say? Um, yeah, yeah, that was uh, when, uh, when you talked about um, uh, the Sahara, mm -hmm. right? Um, they they call it the uh, the wet Sahara, right? Mm -hmm. The um, when you talk about the wet Sahara and the people. 
who was in the West Sahara, you know what I mean, going back over 10,000 years ago. Like, that got to be put into context. You know what I mean? Like, the time period. Like, that, that, mm -hmm. that, like when you speak on. Now, that's an area of contention right there. Because mm -hmm. we got to figure out how long the Berbers been in North Africa. Right? Like, is 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 it, like their DNA show that they've been there a lot, like before the Sahara dried up. Like, you know what I mean? Even the language, even they found on the uh, the island of uh, is that the Canary Islands? Mm -hmm. Right? They, they found one of the oldest uh, groups of, of Berbers on the Canary Islands, right? And they knew that they was. Uh, the uh the remnant suburbs because when they did the DNA and their language, right? So they've been there for so long, it must have been uh even in the wet Sahara, you had the mingling of people, right? Mm -hmm. And then you had the people who completely separated themselves, right? So when the when the Sahara dried up, the Berbers stayed in the Sahara and moved north back towards the Mediterranean and the, the original Saharan population, right, moved into what they called the Sahel and then into, I guess, in the West Africa. What'd you say, y'all? My phone. They be talking to somebody in the background. <laughs> oh. Good. Right. So, so, so what I'm saying is like, and then when you mentioned how they started to move towards uh water sources right mm -hmm. like so you had the uh um you had people moving towards the Nile, like you said it didn't have prominence at that time because it was a lot of different water sources in the sahara at that time so the black african wasn't but it was already people in the uh on the Nile, right mm -hmm. anyway so they had to contend with people moving towards the Nile when the, the Sahara, and then they probably they probably fought over resources at that point. Like that, that had to be an issue, right? But it goes to show that the Berber populations or those populations mixed and all, you know, move towards the Nile, right? You, you, you have them in Libya, you dig what I'm saying? And you have them in the Delta area, you have them all throughout North Africa, Morocco. It shows that North Africa from uh, before the Sahara dried up was um, a mixture of people like Africa. It speaks to the diversity of Africa more than anything else. And an issue with that is because you, you mentioned Chancellor Williams. In Chancellor Williams' book, uh, The Destruction of Black Civilization, he made a... Uh, uh, a quote in the beginning where he said that all of Africa was um, belonged to Black Africa, right? It was their empire, right? Mm -hmm. But those things got to be put in the context and, you know, you have to date stuff. Like, you know what I mean? You When, when you say that, like, what time period is you talking about? And was there a, and was there an empire that you can say at that time, because I was watching, Sean can answer this, 
Sean and Chef, real quick. Do you think they had a DNA test walking around with them then, yo? No, not right. at all. There you have. So I mean, they wouldn't have known anyway. Wouldn't nobody know? They thought they were no, saying. But we do. Yeah, but there's, 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 there's issues there, and I want to again because I talk about the whole um, Sahara thing in Eluja Volume One at the beginning, and so we got to understand, and I give the time periods, and so the the migrations and the drying was, I think it begins at like around five or six thousand BCE. And it doesn't stop until around 2700 BCE. People were still migrating from this point. And so I give the sources and things for this, for the dating and stuff in here. And we, we know that they, there's, there's a, a, a pastoralist element uh, that, and I, like I show, for example, some of the, the artwork. The rock art. Yeah, the rock that was art. Left behind in the Sahara. Exactly. Where you see, for example, this this rock art here with the um the 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 man suckling from the, the divine cow or whatnot in these areas, and how this later shows up in Egyptian motifs. Like I don't know how clear it, it, it would show up. Yeah, we, it's, here. Clear. it's clear. Um, you know, for the for the the other people, uh, but you know, this is, I showed this on pages 24 and 25 and, and other evidence is like, uh, like all of that is accounted for when we do the, the, the research. And so again, I'm saying it's, it's dynamic and it's like, it's not like it's, you know, when we think of migrations, we sometimes, I believe we, we think in terms of Christianity still, and that there was this big exodus with you know thousands and thousands of people marching at the same time towards a a a particular destination and that's not how it happened and that's not how it works you have you know small bands you have sometimes large bands of folks sometimes it's just families that that will migrate and it, and it just accumulates over time in certain areas. And so this causes a lot of diversity because these, these people could be speaking different languages. And so like, you know, I, I use all of this to explain, for example, why you see a lot of doublets in the language of Egyptian. Why do you have five or six words for head in the language, for foot, for heart, liver, it's because it's different groups speaking different languages coming together and existing. And it now becomes these borrowed terms become part of the lexicon and ideas and these different deities and ancestors that they worship. Like it's complex. It is the problem is, is that, and this goes to a point that you were making, you know, earlier, uh, you didn't word it this way, but, but this is how I would word it is the oversimplification of African history. And so people think it's just, you know, it was, it was 20 people in the Sahara 
and all 20 of them moved to Egypt and started Egypt and then they diversified and became millions and then these millions they all left Egypt and all the Arabs moved in and and they populated the rest of black Africa and this is why they're like this is how it's almost discussed sometimes in 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 particular circles and we always have to correct these things but again when when the critiques come out they're not critiquing the 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 serious scholars who are looking at this they're critiquing the Sara student series the young pharaohs the brother polite you know yeah. that's 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 in our modern day back in when Mary Lefkowitz it was um uh Khalid Muhammad and you know Ashra Kwesi and uh who else you name like uh what's his what's that brother I've been to one of his lectures it was crazy uh you know like I, f- I forgot his name but uh, you, no it wasn't Browder uh he he's he's on the pseudo train um, y'all know who it's like him and Bobby Hemmett. Bobby Hemmett, you know, and uh, you know, and and, and those are like Phil Valentine. Like these are the people that they'll critique because they're the ones that are visible. So remember, this is back in the day where you know we didn't have YouTube and stuff, but the videos were circulating. So like when you would go to all these black events, you have people selling videotapes and DVDs of all the lectures. So you get some of Asa Hilliard and Naeem Akbar and, and Dr. Ben and Dr. Clark. and But then here comes Phil Valentine and Bobby Hemmett and some other folks who were, were talking about third eye consciousness and chakras and all of this other kind of stuff. And everything gets kind of mixed in. And then, you know, they're doing like I was doing as a Hebrew Israelite coming into college, arguing with the professors. You know that we are the true hebrews and it says so in deuteronomy 28 verse 68 and yada 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 so you know um again it's it's there's a lot of work to be done there's a lot of work being done it's it's just that we have to figure out a better way to channel but this is this is the result when we don't own our own institutions because regardless you know we're having more and more babies and they're being sent to public schools where they're not learning their history and heritage. And then of course it's gonna, you know, uh, come to a point where they're gonna wanna know more about themselves. So the first place that they're gonna look to now is the internet. And when they do a search, who are they gonna find immediately? That's a good point. That's you know. a good point. That's dangerous. That's so, dangerous. Uh, Jeffrey. Yo. Are you familiar with the uh, you know I am. Go ahead. the cabal people or the cabal myth? Kabale, I might be pronouncing it wrong. The Kabbalah? Yeah, no, no, no. Kabale, the uh, oh, okay. verbal. They, they, one of the uh, verbal uh, tribes. Yeah, yeah. There's a myth. It's a, there's a myth surrounded uh, surrounding them because this is. Uh, let me, let me let me see if I can share my script. Excuse me. Verbal culture is complex. I'm gonna say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very it's, diverse. This is who they, they threw a blanket it. term over uh, a whole. It, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So I got to put it on the screen. But this is who uh-huh. Europeans are claiming to be a part of them, right? 
if you I don't know if you can see on my on my screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these are the people. Look, look where they at. Mm -hmm. If I bring this up right here, you can see. Like, look, they closest head to the Mediterranean. Right. Let me make yours full screen. I'm sorry. Hold on. So we can see. And and they you know, if you look up is their name right there at the top. The okay. people. Mm -hmm. yeah, the oh, the yeah, the French. The, the French are claiming the identity of these particular people. They're trying to claim that these people are so similar to their way of life and the, and the things that they actually do. And, and um, so that's part of the, that's why I ask, you know, when you bring up the Berbers, you know what I'm saying? It get funky. And you're right, it is very complex because uh, a lot of the people that we, we call, or I, you know, or look at as Berber, part of Berber tribes specifically, you know, like, um, some of the Tourette, you know what I'm saying? They kind of mixed up. And we got to remember as well, like if, I don't know if y'all recall the, uh, the black mummy. Oh, and out of Libya. Yeah, that's 10,000 years old. So, but exactly. So like you have these black African yeah. folks who, who populated strongly the, like places like Libya. But if you look at it today, it doesn't look like it was a whole bunch of black folks there. Mm -hmm. you know and so people people got to understand these things and like um yeah it, it's just it's just complex it, it's it's we we you got to take it point point for point and then break it down in certain time periods um and then have the discussion you know based on that uh you, hold on one second you just gotta ask you gotta ask those people that actually come up in um in North Africa, and you'll find that that they're old indigenous people. That that's why the Moors is crazy because you go to Mauritania and all that, you'll find out to this day they still mistreating a lot of the darker people there. That 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 their history will admit all the original people there. So that's a I mean that ain't a hard go to Libya, go to Mauritania and all those places, and you'll find that. And, and right now, if you study right now, they still got that racism going over. They mistreat the dark. But I ain't even talking. No, that's, that's, I, I agree. And then you have to look at Berbers <laughs> using the darker people as slaves. And you have mm -hmm. to look at, uh, see, it, it's, it's real sketchy, right? You have, you have groups that passed over into Niger, right, and northern Nigeria within the last 600 years, right? Mm -hmm. That still, you they they you can they looked at their language and they can tell that these people came from the north like Assal was saying because you know they they have a language affinity more similar to the berbers right so like it's it's way more north africa is way more complex you know what i mean in in a contested area you know than we, than we think most of us get the assumption that the Arabs came in, lightened the population up of North Africa, this, that, and the third. But it's way older than the Islamic invasion. You feel me? The, the, the Berbers are not even Arabs. There's only a couple groups of Berbers that have lineage to Arabs, right? The Arabs actually looked down at most Berber tribes, which shows that they was a different people all together so it's very complex but go ahead um. 
I wanna I wanna go to Mark Bunnell's work, right? Mm -hmm. Book three. And I wanna try to pull up. Let me see. What I want to do is uh I wanna pull up something I want to show y'all about. You know, I like studying the wares, right? Mm -hmm. And it's wavy line pottery, and we extend that. I don't think there'll be no debate on who first made wavy line pottery. Am I correct? Mm -hmm. All right. This is definitely in the Sahara, right? This wavy line pottery, you see the newbie and all that. And but it but but it extends. Let me see. Let me see if I can get a picture. I want to kind of show y'all something here. Uh, Black Athena, book three. Let me see if I can get an actual picture value so I can show you the wave line, line real quick. And it's a man, you hey, child, do you got a picture of that? That's book one. Let me see. Damn, one uh, second, right? Forward is in the forward. Let me see. Damn it, you, you, you're asking if I have a PDF copy. You got a PDF. Of which book? Book three. Yeah, I, I can get it real quick. Hold on. Yeah, get that real quick. Good. We're gonna we're gonna show you something here. Uh, excuse me, it may take a little longer. Uh, where would I have that? Ebooks. In the meantime, let me say this. I, I think what my point about North Africa. And the Berbers and different things like that is the is to fight against the point that Africa was the dark continent. Like, no, it was people knew about it. People was traveling there. It was that, that I, I feel like that's a more of a what Assad was saying earlier about one of the myths of slavery. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that it was it was just the dark continent. Like you can go back and you know, for thousands of years and see the contact, you know, a different people moving on the continent of Africa, living there, having contact with black Africans, you know what I mean, mixing culture. It wasn't the dark continent like they were saying. Like if it was certain Europeans from uh, say France and England that didn't know, you feel me? But mm -hmm. Mediterranean people was moving into Africa for thousands of years. So like, it's just crazy to think that these people wasn't living there for thousands of years, mixing with the culture, and it was just a it was a mixture. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. Yeah, that's that's why, like you know, um, we it, we always have these conversations, and I and I keep saying like this was this this was part of my debates with uh, brother Ngozi, you know, back in the day. Because he would try to make these hardline demarcations based on uh, his understanding of genetic studies, <laughs> and I'm like, you you can't. It's the culture. That's the only way that you're going to be able to differentiate one people from another. And ultimately, when we're when we're having these conversations, we could care less about what their genetic makeup was. We're impressed by the society, their their system of thought, their 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 artistic works and creations, their sense of family and stuff like this. It's the people's ideas, the mental of them that we're drawn to. 
not the genetics. And people can adopt cultures. And so this is this is something else I discussed in, in discussing the whole Sahara thing and showing in um, that there was interactions between the people in the Levant in ancient Egypt. And then, you know, I'm citing the sources that are talking about you by they can tell by the archaeology that the the people in the Levant were coming in and settling into uh, the Egyptian society. And and slowly but surely, you're seeing that they're abandoning the the culture and culture facts coming out of the Levant, and is solely now what you find just normally in ancient Egypt, which is telling, because now they're assimilating into Egyptian culture, and you know they didn't have Black African power back then, you know they they was on them white girls and. That's just the kind of stuff that they liked. And there's nothing you can you you can too, you know, we like foreign, you know, um, and 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 not in the sense that, you know, we're looking at it from from a color perspective. You know, you think about it when you was in high school. Where did all the fine girls go to? Mm-hmm. They went to some other school that you didn't go to, the school right. you didn't go to. You wanted to date all the girls from across town and, and from the white. It's not that your school didn't have pretty girls, you know, and pretty women. It's just it was something about there was a prestige about getting a sister from across town at another school and all this other kind of stuff. So it it, it it's the same way. And I don't know why this computer is acting so slow, but it, don't I'm, worry about I'm, it. I'm going there. Oh, sorry. Go, ahead. go to uh, can can you get to page uh, three, chapter three, page sixty three? If you look at my screen, I got a picture of the wave line. Waving on pottery. Can you can y'all see? Uh, hold on. I mean, uh, or did you share your screen? No, you have to share yeah. your screen. Okay. Y'all see it, right? Who drew that? That's in uh, wait is is distribution of universal harpoon and wavy line pottery. That's in Mark Bunnell's work. Y'all, y'all see it though, right? Yeah. So uh, if you go to page 62, we're talking about cartoon, right? And Mesolithic or early cartoon. All right. And uh, talking about Kenya, the 10th century millennium BCE has been found more than 40 sites. Hold on. Cartoon uh, and its site excavated in 1940s, and it's a source for that. So we're talking about excavation in this cartoon. Evidence of this culture dating from the 10th to 7th millennium uh, BP has been found in more We lost you again. As far as west as Algeria and Senegal, okay? As map one shows, and I think that's map one right there, Yep, ecological zone is quite clear. With one exception, all the sites are north and east of the present Sudanian region of the woodlands and grass savanna. This area seems to have been tropical rainforest at the time. Most sites are in present Sahara in region that were then probably Sahelian grass peoples and light woodland. All were close to what 
were then lakes and rivers. The characteristic, the characteristic objects of this material culture were bone harpoon heads, most of them barbed on only one side, or universal and pot on universal and pottery decorated with wavy or later dotted wavy lines. This local innovation are attested before before 9000 BP, earlier than use of pottery in Southwest Asia. In the Sahara, pottery was probably made of imitation of natural containers and liquid orchard eggs and calabash grounds. It appears to have developed from clay basket linear made to prevent seeds from falling through the mesh. Containers like this are still used in parts of Sudan and Ethiopia. So my point is, look at the area. Now, if you're saying that the Berbers was all in Kenya and everywhere and all that, then you know you, then I, right, what you want me to say? But I'm saying this is, this, this ain't got nothing to do with the Berbers, okay? These harpoons, okay? You know what I'm saying? They they, they, they hunting hippopotamus, all right? It's, it's, you know what I'm saying? This is, this is where the study really is, all right? So, I mean, we, so for me, uh, harpoons, hunting hippopotamus, feline pottery, they had tested in Kenya. Kenya, from Kenya straight up to the Sahara. We're not even talking about North Africa yet. So if this is a Berber area, then it's a Berber area. But I ain't never known Berbers to, to occupy, you know what I'm saying, Kenya in heavy, heavy numbers. So I, I, my point Who is- said Shep that? Well, I just want to show you, my point is this, that the Sahara, just keep trying to make the Berber Saharian, you know what I'm saying? Come on, man. You trying to make oh, you, it the Berber Saharian. You said that the people in Kenya was hunting hippopotamus with- Yeah, hearts, with they got harpoons. Yeah. And make, so that make. means that uh, Berbers wasn't in North Africa? But they no 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 no. I'm saying they're not making wavy line pottery. This is a this oh, is a okay, culture. Cool. Here. Look, hey. But I wanted to show you how far the culture stretched. But I wanted to show you how the how far the culture stretched. What what Do page? You say black Africans were in the Sahara. Huh. Did I ever make that claim? But no, I just wanted to let you know that they that the bears are. What are, what page black. was that um that image on in book three? Yeah, it's in it's on it's in Roman numerals. So it's at the beginning of the book. At the beginning, where where where, where he's talking about the different like where where the maps are, diffusion of Afroasiatic from Asia and all that. Yeah. Different I mean, at the beginning is the distribution of universal harp and wavy line pottery, bone harpoon. Yeah. This come this comes straight out of those areas with hippopotamus. Not to say the hippopotamus, but 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 <laughs> um, I, I I have some sources that argue that the Berbers originate in in like near like the the Bedarian area, the the original Berbers Berbers before um, they they went further north and the intermixing began. Uh, you mean as a language group? Or as a language, language group. I gotta. Okay. I gotta review that. I gotta review that data again and, and 
maybe in the future we'll have a, a discussion and I can bring it. But um, I'm not seeing. I'm seeing all the I'm, language. You can't find it. It's right there. It's at the beginning. Yeah, I'm, 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 I was going down, but now I'm going it's back right up. It's right after the maps and charts. Huh? Yeah, go to maps and charts. Yeah, I'm in Ma the maps and charts. It's just a, it's mad maps. <laughs> there we go. All right, the first one. The yeah, first I'm there, but I'm, I'm trying to see if there's a way, because I'm on this Chromebook on this on this thing here, and um, I don't know if this if I can turn it. Yeah, it won't the, turn the, the, the image. Yeah, why? They, I don't know why they did that like that. I, could, I mean, I, I know why, but I mean, it's a it's a book book, but um, yeah. It, um, me showing this wouldn't be any better than when you showed it, because <laughs> uh, it's still sideways by our by our standard. But yeah, that that wavy line pottery, um, and and that's in that's that's something that people have to consider as well is the the nature of styles and culture facts, and so it's it's along those same lines that we're able to make those arguments, for example. That the that Egyptians or people from Marotic Sudan migrated from there to places like uh, southwest and southeast and the northern part of Cam uh, Nigeria and the northern part of Cameroon, and and it's, and it's by it's exactly by that same type of process, um, showing where these where these artifacts spread. But even then. You, there's there's certain things that you have to keep in mind. So, for example, if you see a series of culture facts and artifacts, let's say, for example, in modern day Nigeria, that matches with the Egyptian, assuming either that the Nigerians migrated into the Nile Valley and shared it among them and it began to flourish as a thing there or the reverse. But you also have to keep in mind that it could be via uh, an intermediate exchange. For example, like these culture facts and guilds and things could have originated in uh, ancient Egypt, but remember that they were having um conversations and trade and and marriages and visitations in chad so they could have come and some people could have settled in chad and and brought their culture facts and things to chad and developed a a an institute there and then now the uh, minority of people who came from ancient egypt who settled in chad um, could have could have taught certain techniques and things, and now they're creating these things. And now those people who may not have a genetic connection to the people who were in ancient Egypt now themselves have uh, started doing trade and things with people in Nigeria, and it could have spread to Nigeria while. And, and saying that to say that the Nigerians could have had no contact whatsoever with anybody in ancient Egypt. 
but they got what they got from an intermediate source of the people in Chad. So those are hypotheses that you have to falsify when you're doing this type of research. You always got to keep these things in mind, you know, before we blanket and make, you know, uh, certain types of diffusionist arguments. You know, because it could be diffusion, but it could be a chain. It could be islands of diffusion and not just like a straight chain. I mean, like a straight line or something to that nature. And so that's that's something that, you know, uh, we, we have to consider as well. But um, fellas, uh, you know, we're we're going on three hours now. And so um, I can't do like our good brother Garfield and had a 12 hour shows. No, me. Either. Uh so but I, I so I'm I'm end it here and just want to say that I appreciate and I, I saw earlier and I'm not sure if I recognize this, but um I thank you very much, Sister Ladosha, for the for the um for the gift and the support um um for um the the program. Uh and so I think it's yeah, it's beyond. It's it's gone now. But um, so I just wanted to acknowledge and say thank you, and thanks to the other brother who who gave um, his donation as well. And so I just want to thank everybody in the in the chat, you know, for you know your lively conversation and support and viewing the program. Uh, Robert Rand, Mint S, Crispecta, uh, of course, any Sean is in the in. And Brother Stefan is in on the panel. Um, who else? Movie Guy. Uh, I know Sister Mika Conan Lee is in the building. Uh, Langston Morrison. Uh, I know y'all. Uh, Okinga Gold. Donnie Williams. I think it was Donnie Williams who gave the, the donation. So thank you. Um, Firelight and Tiss. I saw um, Brother Africa in there earlier. Uh, Omawali Africa out of Philly. Um, and Zane Montega. Truth 101. Just want to acknowledge all of you and those who have typed something earlier, but now it's too far gone for me to acknowledge. And thanks to Michael Irwin for your uh your generous gift and donation. Thank you. And so thank all of you guys for, for listening and for supporting the channel and uh, please like and share and keep the conversation going and make sure that y'all tune in tomorrow. First and foremost at 6 PM Eastern time to the pseudo killers channel. As they bring on, what's her name again? Oh man, she's a virologist from the University of Maryland, Department of Medicine, and I forgot her name. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I don't want y'all calling her, messing with her. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had uh, to fly. I took the flyer down. Let me see. Um, just tune in, man. Just be that sick and send your send your questions to pseudo killer at gmail.com that's pseudo killers at gmail.com all right killers is spelled k-i-l-l-a-s send your question man i had my questions ready okay it's, it's, I, it's, 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 it's dr kern 
is is Dr. Karen Paul. Um, she's the MD. She's the head of the of the Division of Infectious Disease and Tropical um, uh, Pediatrics, um, and the Director of Clinical Studies at the Center for Vaccine Development and Global Health. So she's a heavy hitter. Y'all gonna want to tune in and, and hear what this uh, the doctor has to say about uh, the virus and the vaccine and how we can protect ourselves moving forward. Indeed, indeed. And so that's gonna be at 6 p.m. tomorrow on the Pseudo Killers channel. So make sure y'all support that. Make sure y'all support Abjuwear um at abjuware.com a b j u w or is it a dash w a b d j u w e a r dot com dot com um and 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 purchase some shoes or some shirts um support our good brother uh any haired sean make sure y'all purchase and get a hold of the Mossy Warrior Clan Texas. I think it's three volumes of these now. Um, and so this is volume one. I'm gonna have them as soon as I finish reading it. Uh, you know, school and all this has me, and I'm editing, I'm reading, I'm editing three books right now. Um, not for myself, these are for my clients. And so uh, I've only gotten halfway through. Uh, this particular text, but we will have the whole clan on in the near future. Hopefully, I'm gonna do a do a Black History Month, so we get some extra blackness. So support the Mosi Warrior Clan uh, and Studio Killers. And if y'all in Baltimore, y'all hit up Brother Sheffern and get the fresh fade. <laughs> uh, so y'all don't be looking pseudo in these streets <laughs> with the, with these haircuts. <laughs> and support uh sister ladasha Wright in her shop and uh just brother robert Rand. just you in new york just say what's up to the brother uh and omawali africa you know with um uh in in north philly with the unia as well as the uh, Malefe Asante Institute and Afrocentricity International and, and all of those things. So make sure, peace and shout out to Visa, uh, Nicola, uh, uh, Nicolo, uh, Gula, and, and, and Inalienable Rights. Thank you for um, joining. And with that said, I want to thank my panel and thank everybody who is, who is catching it live as well on Facebook who um, I didn't get a chance to see who was there. Uh, Brother Sanjetti was supposed to be with us today, uh, but I think he had to wake up early for work. Uh, so be safe, happy new year, and I will see y'all tomorrow, same time at 8 p.m. after their show. Uh, and I'm gonna give y'all these non-pseudo book recommendations. So y'all be um, coming up to Brother Sheffron at the barbershop with all that crazy, uh, black allergy talk. <laughs> Thanks. So, uh, with that said, y'all have a good night. This is my contact information, and y'all be blessed.